Mark chapter um, 15, verse 42, to chapter 16, verse 8. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen, cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James and Salome, brought the spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were very alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Just as, he, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Uh, but let's, um, let's bear in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you, for, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that your word has been passed on down to us through the ages, uh, that it reveals to us uh, who you are and your plan for the world and your plan for our lives. We thank you, Father God, that you've given us your Holy Spirit who takes the word and uses it as a sword to uh, pierce our minds and pierce our hearts so that we can understand more clearly. And so we pray that as we consider this passage that you would give us uh, fresh insights that you would uh, affirm for us that which we know to be true and, uh, Father, that we would have a greater assurance of the forgiveness of sins through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we pray these things now in his most precious name. Amen. <clears throat> People say that the idea of, uh, the idea of resurrection is ridiculous. It's stupid. Um, last week, there was a well-known Christian uh, figure who was uh, being criticised in the Sydney Morning Herald for a stand that he was taking on a social-slash-political kind of issue. And uh, I don't want to talk about the issue, but it was intriguing to me uh, how he was criticised uh, for his social-slash-political ideas. Listen to what the commentator said in order to 
dismissed the social political views of this Christian person. And he, and he wrote as if he was writing a letter to the individual. This is what he said. He said, having talked about the views that the person holds, he says, then again, you do believe uh, that in a man who was born to a virgin mother with no biological father and who rose from the dead under strict supervision from his real dad who lives in the sky. End of quote. Uh, that's a good objective uh, analysis, isn't it? What's he saying? He's saying you're an idiot. He's saying you're a fool. He's saying you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so why should we take you seriously on anything? You're a nutcase. And friends... In one sense, you can see why he would say that. Uh, it's easy for us to say that we believe in the resurrection, but if we believe, if we truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus, what are we actually saying? What we're saying is this. We're saying that 2,000 years ago, that Jesus was bashed up, that he was scourged with a, uh, with a terrible whip, uh, that he was nailed to a cross that he hung there until he died, and I'm talking really died, I'm talking stone cold dead. Uh, his, you know, his heart, his lungs, his brain, uh, they all completely shut down. He was a corpse and he was buried and he was decaying in a tomb which was sealed by a large stone. But uh, a couple of days later, the decay in his body reversed. Uh, his heart, his lungs, his brain, every part of his body kind of restarted without any memory loss. In fact, with no effects of the suffering that he'd been through at all, except for the holes where the nails had been. Uh, that's resurrection, isn't it? Is that what we're talking... When we, when we saw we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, is that what we're saying? That's what we're saying, isn't it? And so, in one sense, you can understand why some people just dismiss that as being pure nonsense, just a myth, just ridiculous. Um, there are other people, people, people within churches, uh, even prominent church leaders who think it's ridiculous. Uh, they're embarrassed by it. And they, what they say is, yes, we believe in resurrection... <laughs> but not that kind of resurrection. We don't actually believe that that actually happened. Uh, we only believe that resurrection happened as a metaphor. They would say that, you know, if you could find them, the bones of Jesus are still buried somewhere in, uh, outside of Jerusalem. But he is resurrected in, in the sense that what he taught us by his life, by his words... Uh, still lives on in our memories. It still lives on after 2,000 years in our hearts and it shapes the way that we live. Now, when you think about it, you can understand why people would say that the idea that uh, Jesus died on a Friday afternoon, that he came alive on the Monday, that it is fanciful, that it's 
It's ridiculous stuff. It's nonsense. You can understand why people would say that. However, if it is true, then the implications are enormous. If it is true, then it is actually the most important event in human history. If it is true, it is a shocking event which really ought to shake us to our very core. Now, according to Mark's Gospel, people who were around at the time were shaken to their very core. People were shocked by what happened not only at the resurrection, but after the resurrection. I wonder if you can open up your Bibles at Mark chapter 15. Because in Mark chapter 15, the passage that was read to us earlier on, we see, first of all, how the Roman governor Pilate reacted to the death of Jesus. Now, I think it would be a big overstatement to say that uh, Pilate was shocked by the death of Jesus, but he was certainly very surprised, wasn't he? If you have a look in verse 44, Pilate was surprised uh, when he heard on the Friday that Jesus was already dead. You see, Jesus had died too soon. Crucified men, they would normally hang there for two or three days before their bodies would just give up. But Jesus, Jesus died on the same day. This is most unusual. This is very surprising. Pilate was surprised when the centurion told him about it. It was too soon. I guess it was as if Jesus had given up his spirit, like we talked about last week. The death of Jesus, you could also say in a sense, was too soon for a man who was named Joseph of Arimathea. We meet him in the passage here. Uh, He was the man who arranged for Jesus to be buried. Um, In verse 46, we're told by Mark that that Joseph uh, had taken the body of of Jesus down from the cross, uh, wrapped his body in linen, placed it in a tomb which he uh, had closed up with a large stone. Now, there's a couple of very strange things about this. One is the fact that Pilate let him do it in the first place. The reason I say that is that uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, normally it was the case that uh, crucified men were left to rot. It's part of the part of the uh, nature of crucifixion. People are able, uh, can see your body actually rotting. The Jews had some sensibilities about this, uh, mainly because of uh, ceremonial cleanness and so on. And uh, so as a bit of a compromise there, Roman governors would allow for the victims of, Jewish victims of crucifixion to be taken down from the crucifix and buried uh, if their families uh, requested it and not if the person had been convicted of a charge of high treason. This is unusual because Jesus had uh, had been found guilty of high treason. He, the charge was that he was an alternative king to Caesar It's also strange because Joseph of Arimathea was not one of his family members. 
And so Pilate most likely has allowed this to happen because Pilate really knew that Jesus was not guilty in any case. So they're the strange things. But who was Joseph? Well, in verse 43, we're told that he was a prominent member of the council. Uh, That is, that he was one of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin who had convicted Jesus on the charge of blasphemy. And you can imagine from what we've read in the story that Joseph must have felt extremely uncomfortable sitting in the Sanhedrin when that, uh, uh, when that verdict was made. Uh, we're told that he was a godly man. Uh, Matthew, in his Gospel, describes Joseph of Arimathea as being a disciple of Jesus. Uh, here in verse 43, we're told that he was a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, that's very important. That's extremely important because... As we've uh, been working through Mark's Gospel, and we started it December of last year, by the way, uh, as we've been working through Mark's Gospel, one of the themes which has been woven through it is the theme of the Kingdom of God. Um, Commencing right in chapter 1, verse 15, when John the Baptist uh, arrives on the scene preaching uh, in the wilderness, and John the Baptist uh, preaches to people that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And then the very next thing that happens is that Jesus turns up. And throughout his teaching, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God, that it starts as a small seed, it grows uh, like a large tree, and he's connected the kingdom of God with himself. And so there was great anticipation amongst the disciples that uh, Jesus was the king of this great kingdom that was coming. There was great excitement, great expectations that uh, Jesus would be the one who would uh, lead the rebellion, who would drive out the Romans, who would establish the great kingdom of God as it was in the days of Solomon. But now it's ended in tears. Jesus is a corpse. His friends have all scattered. It's all ended too soon. And the least thing that Joseph of Arimathea can do is to actually provide a respectful, proper burial. Now, some people these days try to avoid the implications of the uh, resurrection by coming up with the theory that Jesus actually did not die on the cross. Have you heard this one? Uh, What they say is that uh, he only passed out. He became unconscious on the cross and uh, fooled everybody and in the cold uh, Judean tomb Uh, Over a couple of days he was refreshed and he uh, regained his consciousness and he kind of pushed the stone away and appeared to everybody as if he'd conquered death. They call it the swoon theory. But the Roman centurion knew a dead man when he saw one. 
And here we're told that the Roman centurion declared to Pilate that Jesus was dead. Joseph, or perhaps his servants, had actually carried the corpse from the cross. Can you imagine doing that? I think you know when you're carrying a dead corpse, don't you? And the women who cared for Jesus, well, they had no doubts that he was dead. Have a look in chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. I'm going to read that for you. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Now these women had a problem, didn't they? Uh, They wanted to go to the body of Jesus. They wanted to pour some sweet-smelling aromatic uh, spices, um, ointment upon him uh, in order to counteract the smell of the decay but as a mark of respect for uh, Jesus whom they loved so much. They had the spices. They were on their route, on their way there. There was one thing that they hadn't thought about it. They had no plan for how to actually remove the stone to get in. They had seen where Joseph had buried Jesus. He was buried in an old quarry. Um, tombs had been, uh, had been cut out. Tombs had been dug into the walls of the quarry. Um, and the, each of the tombs had, a, had an outer room and then a, uh, a very short doorway uh, that led into an inner room where the bodies were laid. And most likely the entrance to the tomb had a a track carved into the rock and uh, into that track uh, could be rolled a uh, a uh, disc-shaped stone and it could be rolled uh, rolled along the track and set in place uh, at the entrance to the tomb and then sealed. So the real question is how are they going to get in? Uh, These rocks, these stones weigh a lot. How could they do it? Who would move the stone for them? Now, it turns out that they actually had bigger issues to confront than that because when they arrived at the tomb, they made a shocking discovery. They discovered that that the stone had already been moved and inside the tomb there was no body. Jesus' body wasn't there. There was a young man. He's described as a young man who is dressed in white robes. In biblical terms, he's an angel. He's a messenger from God. And listen to what this messenger from God said to them in verse 6. He said, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. All right, so how did the women react? Well, they were shocked, they were bewildered, They trembled. They were in fear. And we can understand why. The body had gone. 
And they just met an angel. But more than that, Jesus had risen. Jesus had risen. Um, in verse 7, the angel said that they would see Jesus in Galilee just as he told you. And friends, that's chilling when you think about it. Because the day before, in chapter 14, verse 28, in the upper room, as Jesus shared the Last Supper uh, with his disciples, he uh, not only predicted his betrayal, but he told his disciples, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus had predicted it. Jesus had already said that this was going to happen. In fact, if we look back a little bit further, can we come with me in your Bibles back to chapter 9, verse 31 for a moment? In chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus laid it all out for them. He told them exactly what was going to happen. In verse 31, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Go over the page to chapter 10, verse 33. Chapter 10, verse 33. It says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, what will happen? Well, he will betrayed, be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Now at this point in Mark's story, all of this has happened, isn't it? But what else does he say? Three days later he will, he will rise. Three days later he will rise. You see, Jesus had announced the plan. But nobody, not even the disciples, understood it and far from that they did not expect it to happen so here trembling bewildered in fear and on that note mark concludes his gospel now sometime early in church history somebody decided that an ending like that was just too stark, too abrupt. And so they decided to finish it off for Mark um, and give the story a smoother ending, if you like. Uh, you can see that in your Bibles, can't you? You see in your Bibles there that there is a line that's drawn under verse 8 and then there is verses 9 through to 20 you know, which tell you things like, you know, that you'll do wonderful things and you can be bitten by snakes and you can drink deadly poison and it's not going to affect you and so on and so forth. But those verses do not appear in the oldest and the most reliable manuscripts of Mark's Gospel that we have in our possession. And so there is good reason to conclude that they were not part of what Mark wrote. Uh, and, and that's the reason why we didn't read them earlier on. There's only a couple of places in the Bible where that happens. The other one is uh, the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. 
And it gives us confidence in our Bibles that where they think that there's been additions like that, that it's actually stated in the Bible and they draw the line across it. There's no fudging it uh, with our Bibles. You see, friends, we don't need to smooth out the ending. It's like, like a movie that leaves you speechless. Mark intends to finish on a note of shock. In fact, throughout Mark's Gospel, people have often been left in fear because of Jesus. As Jesus calmed the sea, as Jesus walked on water, as Jesus drove out evil spirits from a man and they all went into pigs who went and drowned themselves uh, in the lake, as Jesus healed the sick, as Jesus as heaven invaded earth, people were left feeling terrified by Jesus. Who is this man? Who is this man, the disciples said, who even the wind and the waves obey him? And well might we ask, who is this man who cannot be contained, not even by death itself, Joseph of Arimathea was a man who looked forward to the kingdom of God coming. Little did he know that by sealing the body of Jesus uh, into a tomb that he would actually play a big part in the, in the great victory of God's king who on the third day, by the power of the mighty hand of God, broke free from the grip of death. And I say the grip of death because death has its grip on all people. Um, people mock the idea of resurrection and eternal life. People say that it's a ridiculous idea. People say that if you believe it, you're a fool. People say, well, just look around you. Uh, you, you, you know, when you're dead, you're dead and that's it. Dead people do not rise. Met anyone lately who's risen from the dead? Doesn't happen. But why do we die? Well, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us that death is the punishment for our sin, our rebellion against God. And that, friends, that is the power that Satan has over us. The power that Satan has is the accusing finger, the finger that points to our guilt, the guilt of our sin, the punishment for which is death and ultimately the punishment for which is, along with Satan, a separation from God the Father forever. But what if our sin was paid for? What if someone of infinite value and perfection was separated from the Father instead of us, in our place? What would then happen to Satan's grip over us? Would a sacrifice like that be sufficient? How long would the separation need to be for the payment to be fully made. 
And the stunning answer to that question is from a Friday evening to a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. Jesus was stone cold dead. He was a corpse. But what the resurrection does is that the resurrection proves that his sacrifice has been enough. That his sacrifice was sufficient. That the punishment on Jesus is not ongoing because he's paid the debt. It's complete. It's paid in full. The punishment is over. The grip that death has is now broken. And it's broken for us, for those of us who unite ourselves with Jesus by faith, who name him as our victorious king, the one in whom we put our trust, the one in whom we live in obedience to him. And so that's the impact of the resurrection. I want to ask you, what do you think about the resurrection? How do you feel about the resurrection? Do you think that we sometimes lose the shock value of the resurrection? Well, I think we do, actually. I think that uh, it's very, very easy for us to say the words. It's very easy for us to say, oh, yeah, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, Jesus is coming back again. Uh, it's very easy for us to sing the songs and to sing the hymns, you know. Jesus Christ is risen today, hallelujah. But like the women at the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus ought to shake our very souls so that we too would ask, who is this man? And we too would be people who would entrust our lives into his hands for he has been resurrected from the dead he is victorious over death the payment for sin has been made in full and the resurrection of Jesus is the proof of that let's pray shall we Father in heaven we do thank you for your great plan of salvation. We thank you that Jesus was obedient to you, even unto death on a cross. We thank you, Father God, for the great victory that you've shown, that your mighty hand has raised Jesus from the dead. We thank you that you have defeated Satan, that you have taken away the power that he had over our lives. And Father, we pray that uh, we would be people who uh, understand uh, Christ's death, understand his resurrection, and put our trust, our faith, our hope in him. And we ask these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.